We're going to have Aaron Ferguson come on up after I read. All right, Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Aaron is going to be preaching today if he wants to come on up. He is an MC leader. He's one of our interns. He's an all-around awesome guy, along with his wife, Caitlin. You're so grateful. They have done so many things, um, especially behind the scenes. So make sure you are constantly encouraging them also. Um, and let's pray for him. God, thank you so much for Aaron. Thank you for the ways that you have equipped him and called him and gifted him. Thank you for his preparation this week. God, we pray that our hearts can be open, keep us humble in what you want to teach us through him. God, we're excited for just him um, as he serves within our local church body and what his future is to come. Thank you for him and Kaylin. God, this morning, I just pray that um, you can help fill us up and send us up, send us out through him. We thank you for him in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Amy. Um, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Um, feels like it's been a year since I've seen most of you guys. All my, uh, my sixth graders rolled their eyes the same way when I said that on the first day of school. Uh, but seriously, it is good to be back together, um, gathered and worshiping as a church family today. Um, I hope your new year festivities went well. Hope you had fun. Hope you were safe. I hope your new year, this first week, has been off to a great start. Um, I was reading this article this week on some of the most common uh, New Year's resolutions. And to no one's surprise, it's a very unsurprising list. Almost everyone in here has probably made the same resolutions. I know I have. Uh, exercise more. Eat healthier, save money, um, stuff like that. I saw one on the list that was just like, be a better person. Like, a, I guess that's a good resolution. It's not specific, but yeah. 
they're all good resolutions. Like I said, most of us make those same resolutions every year. What about for us? I know on January 1st, for a lot of Christians, it means the start of a new year-long Bible reading plan. And you find it, you know, sometime in November or something. This is the one. The Bible reading plan. I'll finally get all the way through it. I won't get bogged down in Leviticus this time. And I'm not trying to disparage, disparage any of you because I've said that dozens of times in my life. Uh, but I want us to make a kind of resolution together as we start this new year. Um, for me, as a teacher and a preacher, for a congregation, as we start to wade into the waters of Matthew's Gospel, for our MCs, when we discuss the Word with each other, and then on our own, as individual members, studying the Word, let's be a church that does biblical theology well together. And what do I mean by that? Sounds like a, a technical term. This is what I mean. As we read scripture, together and on our own, let's make a pointed effort to use the spirit-inspired tools that are built into the Bible itself. Things like tracing themes, keywords, phrases, recognizing character motifs and story arcs. The Bible is full of these patterns many of which will make comparisons and contrasts, especially between the Old and New Testaments, in order to highlight who God is, what He's doing in our world, and what it should look like to be His people. And in doing biblical theology, I think that will help us not to get bogged down in Leviticus again. Here's the payoff. Reading and being familiar with Leviticus in February will make reading Hebrews in November all the more rich. And then you'll look back when you're reading Hebrews and feel like you understand Leviticus more. Next December, that week between Christmas and New Year's when you're wrapping up Revelation, you'll have a much better chance at making sense of things because you've kept images and themes and ideas from Daniel and Ezekiel in your head. And I can feel some more eye rolls like, you know, that opening dad joke. Um, Aaron, I didn't go to seminary. How am I supposed to learn this technical stuff? I don't have time for any of that. And to that, I'll give you this encouragement. If you have watched and seeing continuity in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can do biblical theology. <laughs> you can. I'll say it again. For the last decade plus, Disney has been unknowingly training fans of the MCU to do biblical theology. Let's just a couple quick examples from Marvel, so you know what I'm talking about. And then we'll look at Matthew. First off, in the Avengers movies. If you haven't seen them, you might want to go top off your coffee cup real quick. The last one came out two and a half years ago. You had a whole pandemic to watch it, so I'm sorry. But anyway, 
You have this scene at the end of the first Iron Man movie. It's like the very first one in this contiguous story of movies where, you know, Tony Stark, the hero, he's done his hero thing, he saved the day, and now he's uh, doing a press conference, he's doing some damage control, trying to explain this incident away and keep his secret identity safe. But instead, the closing shot is Tony Stark, this narcissistic billionaire, he looks at the media doing the press conference and he just says, I'm Iron Man. And everyone you know, goes into a frenzy. He's after the attention and the acclaim that comes along with being a superhero. At the end of, you know, fast forward 10 years, at the end of the last Avengers movie, we have the, the same line repeated. And it looks like, you know, the villain, Thanos, he's about to win, despite all of the Avengers' best efforts. And he, you know, looks at Iron Man and says, I'm inevitable. But he doesn't know that Iron Man is just, you know, about to save the day, you know, taking this weapon to use against him. And Tony Stark looks at him and goes, I'm Iron Man. And, you know, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens. Uh, the contrast, though, is clear when you compare the exact same statement across the whole storyline. The younger, selfish Iron Man and the older, nobler Iron Man, he puts his own life on the line to save the universe. It's the repetition of a key phrase that takes us back to the beginning, and it really highlights his character arc, his development, and it gives us, the audience, a moral of the story. Here's another example. That's a, that's a good example of looking at the whole, looking back on everything once it's completed. Um, but what about, you know, maybe we're watching a new movie or a new show, or say you're reading, rereading something in your Bible that you haven't read for a long time. This week, my wife Caitlin and I, we were watching Loki, and this is a newer one, and I wrote this before I finished watching the show, so I can't spoil it for you, don't worry. But there's a scene in the middle where Loki, you know, he's having some drinks at the bar, and he throws his glass on the ground and he shouts, ANOTHER! And then there's, you know, some stylized action violence and they move on to the next scene. And it seems like kind of a throwaway line, but if you've watched all the movies up to this point, it's a callback to that first Thor movie. Thor and Loki, they're brothers, the former's a hero, the latter's a villain. In that first Thor movie, he has a coffee cup and he smashes on the ground. He goes, another! He wants some more coffee. And the writers, like that wasn't an accident. They put that in there on purpose. And this is, you know, as I'm watching it, when I see that happen in the show, it triggers something in my mind that says, oh, this villain character did something that his hero brother did. I need, here's what's signaling to me, I need to be on the lookout for a hero arc. It's setting me up for something, it's subtle, but now it gives me expectations for what's about to come in the later episodes. We'll see what happens, we'll see what plays out. I won't spoil it for you next time I preach. Okay, 
I know that's kind of a long-winded illustration, and you guys aren't here to hear someone preach about the Marvel movies. <laughs> so let's reset. We'll go back and read this first half of our passage in Matthew. And as I read it, this is what I want you to look for. John the Baptist, he's a new kind of Elijah figure, and he's preparing God's people for a new kind of exodus. If you don't see it immediately, that's okay. We'll do some biblical theology together. We'll go back and we'll use the Old Testament to help us figure out what exactly is going on. So here we go. Matthew 3, 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. So again, John the Baptist, he's a new Elijah, and he's preparing the people for a new exodus. And now you're thinking, I don't know about this one. There's nothing in here about the Exodus. And Elijah, well, there's a reference to Isaiah, but not Elijah. And you're a little bit right. Throughout the birth and infancy narratives, we've seen Matthew use this phrase a lot. Something like, this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. It appears a whole lot in these first few chapters of Matthew. But let's do some more digging, because even though Matthew doesn't explicitly give like a citation of the Old Testament, Exodus and Elijah, he's purposefully making allusions to what's happening, to what's happened previously, that will inform how we understand the story, especially how those first readers would have understood the story. So that first part about John the Baptist being a new Elijah. Where are we getting this from and why is it important? We get it from 2 Kings chapter 1. This is the very beginning of Elijah's ministry and he's identified first and foremost by his odd fashion choices. Here's first, 2 Kings chapter 1 verses 7 through 8. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him. He wore a garment of hair with the belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah, the Tishbite. A big woolly shirt tied up with a strip of cowhide. Gotta be Elijah. <laughs> and functionally, John the Baptist's clothing doesn't make very much difference to this story because it's not brought up again. So why does Matthew go out of his way to record this detail? We've seen where he got this from. But why is it important? You see that just by the appearance, the clothing, details alone, Matthew's making this connection. John is a Elijah type guy. But why Elijah? If you got your finger, in the book of Matthew right now, just turn back like three or four pages to Malachi chapter four. 
the last chapter in your Old Testaments. And we'll look at verses 5 and 6. Again, is it coincidental or on purpose that our Bibles are kind of structured in this way? This is the last, these are the last verses in your Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Here's why it's important that John is this new Elijah figure. Matthew's giving us a picture here that whatever is to come, or rather whoever is to follow John, is God's climactic act of judgment and salvation. Matthew's first readers know their Old Testaments well. And they know that before God's Messiah comes, Elijah will be there to announce his arrival. Malachi says as much. And the way Matthew records the details of John the Baptist tells us that he's a new Elijah figure, that he's this guy that the Old Testament told us about, to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his path straight, to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament in Malachi and Isaiah. In this passage, we see that God is up to something new in the world. So John the Baptist is new Elijah. He's preparing God's people for a new exodus. In the Old Testament, God's single greatest act of deliverance was when he brought the, people, the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt and into a new home in the land of Canaan. On their way out of Egypt, they crossed through the Red Sea, um, and then their exodus is over, right? Not quite. They have spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land, and it wasn't until after that where they crossed over or crossed through the Jordan River and entered the land that their journey was completed. Similarly, one of God's greatest acts of judgment in the Old Testament is the exile of Judah into Babylon. But God told his people they weren't going to be punished forever and that one day they would be restored. In the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see those first Jewish settlers returning to the land, returning to Jerusalem after 70 years. But for hundreds of years later, the people of Israel were just kind of passed between empire and empire. Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, never having independence, never having full freedom. They needed God to act again in another great deliverance on their behalf. They needed a new exodus. That was the hope of everyone in John the Baptist's day. So what better place for John to conduct his ministry than the place where the first exodus culminated? In the wilderness of Judea, on the banks of the Jordan River. John could have picked any body of water or any tub. All any baptism requires is just enough water to cover someone. 
But John preaches and he baptizes here specifically. And it's because of the connection to Israel's own story. And it's that meaning which gives this event greater significance. John's heralding signifies something special about the king who's coming and the story arc we should suspect. This is like when Loki smashes the glass. Like it sets us up to see, to think, I need to be expecting something specific now. So John is a new Elijah preparing for a new exodus. We'll see that unfold as we march through Matthew. What about us for today? It's all really good, like fun stuff to read about in your Bible. Um, what does the back half of this passage have to say to us today? Let's read the latter part, and we'll see together that John's preaching, it's in hope of a new kingdom characterized by new life. Matthew chapter 3. And let's read verse 2 again as well, since that's part of John's preaching. And jump down to 7 through 12. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Intense. So first off, this new kingdom. The new exodus that the people are preparing for is not out of an evil empire into nothing. It's out of an evil empire into the kingdom of God. The anti-empire. The kingdom of God is the complete opposite of what they've experienced in Babylon and Rome. If you're new to Karis, or if you're new to this phrase, the kingdom of God, uh, one of the ways we like to describe it around here is um, God's people ruled by God's good law in God's place. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension, the kingdom of God has been launched on earth for the last 2,000 years. Everywhere where God's people submit to God's rule is somewhere where the kingdom of God has taken ground. Somewhere like here. Somewhere in our MCs. When we gather together, when we submit to God's word and do the things that he expects of us, like that's the kingdom of God in real life. It's here in part right now. But God's promise is that it will one day be a universal reality. And standing at the center of any kingdom is its king. And that's where John points us. He says, hey, 
I'm here preparing the way, and the guy I'm preparing the way for, I'm not even worthy to clean the dust off his shoes. That's quite a statement from John, considering what Jesus said about John. Here's what Jesus said about John in Matthew 11. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Type race. John's not just paving the way for an exodus or a kingdom, but the king himself. And he's saying, get ready, because the glorious new king is just around the corner. And what is it that characterizes this new kingdom? It's new life. This, if John's preaching is the kingdom of God is at hand, then his plea is simply repent. Let's look at John's interaction with the religious leaders. Verse 7 again. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's going on here? The Pharisees and Sadducees, these are Israel's religious leaders, and we'll talk a lot about them as we move through all of the Gospel of Matthew. But for now, all we really need to know is that they serve as liaisons between the Roman Empire and Israel's religious system. They have control over the temple, and they're influential teachers among the people. They show up to the Jordan River. It doesn't seem like they have good intentions based on how John responds. Maybe they were trying to figure out what exactly it was that was bringing everyone from everywhere to see John. When they arrive, he greets them with an accusation. Brood of vipers. Yikes. And it's not at all dissimilar to how Jesus will interact with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And all honestly, the religious leaders probably came to look down on the people. You see, baptism was not really a rite that was often practiced by the Jewish people. It's usually only practiced by someone who is converting to Judaism from paganism, from outside the community. Yet here John is calling his fellow Jews to be baptized, to turn from their sin, and to turn back to God, and to display their repentance by being baptized. Basically, he's saying, basically what he wants them to say is, what I was doing before is not at all what God desired of me. I'm leaving that behind for a new life, with a new hope of a new exodus, a new kingdom, and a new king. So imagine being those religious leaders. For starters, turning back to God and away from the way they have been living means leaving the corrupt religious system that those religious leaders had built and preserved. 
but on a more theological level even, this act may well have been religiously offensive to them, bordering on heresy in their minds. Participating in a rite for Gentiles is basically denouncing your previous Jewishness. They approach with their religious accolades, and number one on that list is being children of Abraham. And John says, you don't get it. You don't get what's about to happen at all. If God was just interested in children of Abraham, he could turn these rocks into religious zealots. What God is doing here is so much deeper. Deeper than ethnicity or family line and going right to the heart. What you need to do is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that is, as Pastor Jeff once said to me, a changed mind that manifests itself in a changed life. Repentance is a changed mind that manifests itself in a changed life. Church, John does not take this proclamation lightly. John himself makes an allusion to Malachi 4. Let's go back there again. Read the first few verses. This is from Malachi. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out weeping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. John looks at the religious leaders and says in verse 10, Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire into the oven, as Malachi might put it. He says to these religious leaders and also to the crowds, look, I'm here preparing the way. This baptism, this immersion in water, is a representation of your repentance. But the one who will come after me, I have two baptisms. One of the Holy Spirit and one of fire. That is, for those who are called by him, repent from their sins and follow him, there will be nothing less than immersed into his life and his love by his spirit. And those who are called by him, yet resist and rebel against him and his rule, will be like the husks of grain that are immersed in and consumed by flames. Cars, you ready for good news? The people John preached to, their hearts were stirred, and they repented in anticipation of what John was saying, not knowing fully what was going to unfold. But today, you and I were blessed to be able to repent in response to what Jesus has already done. Yeah. 
leaving his heavenly throne to become like us, fulfilling every promise and requirement of the Old Testament, giving his life for ours on the cross when we were the ones resisting and rebelling, raising from the dead to bring us resurrection life, and returning to his Father to take his rightful place as king over creation. Church, if you're here this morning and you've never thought about turning from your sin, that you might even need to do something like that, I want to invite you to do that this morning. To trust Jesus, to give your allegiance to him as your king. And if you're here and you did that a long time ago, I want to encourage you. This is still the grace and the power that you need every day to fight sin and follow Jesus. In his day, John was a new Elijah, preparing people for a new exodus into a new kingdom characterized by new life. But remember, for us today, John wasn't clearing the way for New Year's resolutions or good vibes or an updated party platform, but for an actual person, Jesus, who loved us and who gave up his life for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us this morning. This year, God, will we be a community that takes your word seriously, that does uh, biblical theology well together as we read it. God, would you open our minds and our hearts this year to understanding and also to obedience. God, thank you for John and his ministry and his message all about Jesus and his kingdom. God, would we uh, take that seriously, his call to repentance and discipleship. God, continue to work in our hearts as we continue to worship you this morning. Give our church unity around the table uh, as we commune with our church family and with you. God, make us remember again in a new way, in a fresh way, who Jesus is and what it is that he's done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.